Hello and welcome to the KBHH podcast, where we are looking at doing things differently in the equine industry. From new technologies to equine behaviour to well-being within equine practice, we've got something for you. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the show. Louise, Claire, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I know Ebs and I are really excited about this chat. Unlike some of our other recordings, we are all together, which is really cool. And we're really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, We're going to kick off with a little introduction from both Claire and Louise. So Lou, do you want to go first? Just tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you're up to and where you are in the world. Okay, so I live in, I'm currently living in Bedfordshire, actually. I work in Millian Hertfordshire on Bedfordshire. I'm a mixed practice there, truly mixed practice. I do three days a week mixed where I focus mainly on small holders and equine clients. Um, I do see some smalls there as well. And then I work two days a week in a busy small animal hospital in London, so which I really love as well. I've graduated just over a year now from RBC. And I am mum to three. So I've got Ethan, Dorothy and Eliza, ranging from 14 to 10. And wife to Chris. I did fit school when my younger, I decided to, I was doing a job, corporate job in, in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Always wanted to do veterinary, but because we had our kids young, that kind of flew out the door. And then just threw the head up with it one day and decided I wanted to be a vet. <laughs> and so, yes, here I am eventually. But Lou, you're making it seem very simple. I think you need to share, <laughs> you know, a little bit more about getting into vet school because it was nothing short of miraculous with so much grit and um, self-belief and determination uh, that I think it needs to be it needs to be heard. You didn't you didn't have the grades originally, did you? <laughs> I had started A levels and then fell pregnant. So I was a teenage mum and basically just had to get a job. Was that school was never really and it, it, that just kind of all just went to the sideline. And then got a job working for Estee Lauder companies in House of Fraser and worked my way up there. I was one of the assistant studio managers, which I love. And we had a team of 21, uh, which was quite quite big. So I, was, I think I was 21 and I had 21 staff that I was managing, which is a bit chaotic. And I, looking back on it now, I feel like I was very underqualified to be doing that sort of thing. And I, I did enjoy that, I have to say. I, I learned a lot about customer facing and you know sales and and just general management and managing my own self I suppose and and working out how to be a mom and work I was very full-time so I was very very busy at that time too busy probably on hindsight I look back and think I probably should take a few more holidays I missed a lot of important events because I was focusing so heavily on my career but you know, we needed the money as well, I guess. So that um, I had to be good at what I did and maybe prove myself a little bit. From a very young age, I wanted to be a vet and I didn't have a plan B. So plan B ended up getting figured out along the way. So I actually at that point enrolled in an equine science diploma where I could do distance learning. And the hope was that 
I wouldn't have to do A-levels. I could go in through the in, into a graduate course. So that was amazing. I loved the equine science course. But again, it was very much a bit of a juggling act because I was trying to work full time. Had Ethan at that time. And then Darcy came along not too long after, I guess. Um, and I was really trying very hard with my studies. And they were completely irrelevant to what I was working at as well. It was it was horses. but. I, I managed to pull some good grades out of that and it seemed like it was all very promising. But all of this was just after 2008, just in the wake of the recession and Ireland was hit pretty hard and the university lost funding after a number of years for distance learning courses. So I had to make a decision to either move to Limerick, which was about 300 miles away from our home and and finish the last year of the official degree in Limerick or I was going to have to do my A-levels which I honestly can't tell you how much I tried to avoid that in every which way <laughs> I really just thought it's going to be so hard and and so I came up with a bright idea to buy some A-level books off Amazon and teach myself the course <laughs> and so that was a categorical mistake and I wouldn't recommend it <laughs> only for the simple fact that you just don't you know you don't really have anybody to turn to and if you've got a question you spend six hours trying to find the answer instead of having a, a tutor or something that can quickly answer your question for you but it, it allowed me to work I, so I, I was still able to work and start my studies and they were kind of going okay ish <laughs> and then I as I say just thought right if I want to be if I want to if I'm going to seriously apply to vet school I need to get a job in a vet's practice there's no point in me working here in House of Fraser they're going to think that this is very un, unorthodox <laughs> sort of a, a client to come along to ask for a place in vet school so I handed in my notice and my manager there just thought I was completely insane and probably was right <laughs> to some extent and so I then wrote a CV and a letter trying to explain to all the vet practices in Northern Ireland, 72 to be precise, actually. There were 72 vet practices. I went through back, back in the day when we had the yellow pages, just wrote a list of all the vet practices and put a letter together and applied just for, I was literally looking for any job. Uh, and it was like I'll I'll do whatever you know I'll answer phones I'll clean I waited and waited and waited and uh, to, to be fair I came from a farming background I had lots of other experience having seen practice and things like that in the build-up to the hope that I would be a vet student one day nobody was calling me back the only ones who called me back I got a, a nice letter from one of the others who basically said I don't really know why you want a job in veterinary. It's kind of not not really tying in with your skill set. So that was the only other feedback that I got. And anyway, I got this phone call through from Murray and it was one of the directors and he said, I've seen your CV and we're actually looking for someone to come and join the team. Would you come in for a chat? I was, I can't do, I think I... I, let, I probably sounded <laughs> way too over-enthusiastic on the phone. I was like, yes, 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 that would be fantastic, you know. I'm sure he was like, right, okay. Um, <laughs> but I went, I, <laughs> um, so I was so excited about this job. And to give you a kind of an idea, I went from 
what I would classify for my age group, a very well-paid job. So I think something like six or seven pounds an hour. And I did not give a hoot. I thought, I don't care what I have to do to make this work. I am taking this job. So actually, I suppose one of the things that really made me take that leap was there was one day I had a client and we started to chat and I found out that she was a pediatric consultant. Lovely, lovely woman. And we just got chatting and chatting. And then I said, actually, obviously chatting about her medical career. I really always wanted to be a vet, but I I didn't do it. And she said, oh, well, well, why not? And I said, well, because I have a little boy and that kind of put paid to my career, dream career as it was. And she's like, well, why? And I was like, well, because I've got some, I've got a child. And, and that usually, anytime I said that, that was my excuse over and done with. And I didn't have to explain myself anymore because people were like, yeah, I see, I see, I get it. But she, she just kept saying, so, so what? If you want to do it, do it. There's plenty of people who've who've gone through university with all sorts of things that you would suspect might hold them back. And actually, in the end, it turns out to be a real driver. And so, I think without her, I, I really now vivid, vividly remember that conversation coming back to me. And I, I wish I could go back and find her and thank her because it was a, a turning point. I think that probably just sparked something that I thought well this lady saw me I can do it and she obviously knows what she's talking about so surely she must be right (laughs) but it's amazing isn't it (laughs) that sometimes you have those conversations where you one person says one thing and that's just enough for you to think oh yeah this is possible and I think I'm a big believer in the phrase of you can't be what you can't see and I think sometimes it's whether it's someone tells you or whether you see it it's the encouragement you need to know that that is possible for you and and then you can that's your and that's your jumping off point and actually that's it's an incredible gift to give somebody and it's an incredible gift that she's given you and look where you are now, you know, that that one conversation has been the kind of spark for everything else. And obviously it's taken like a huge amount of grit and hard work from you, but you know, it's kind of incredible when you drill, drill down that often it is that one moment, that one conversation, that one thing, you know. Yeah. And she sounds like she was a sort of mentor in the moment almost. Often people are very focused on, oh, I have to be part of a mentoring program and get matched up with someone who's right for me. And there she was just right there and you were ready to hear it. And yeah, that was that. And she challenged you and pushed you. It's incredible. And Claire, so Louise's story is probably slightly different to your own, given that you're not in the veterinary profession. But um, <laughs> we would love to hear a little bit about you and your career and just any reflections on, on what we've been talking about so far. You are a coach. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. It's an incredible story. Louise has just told. Um, There are some overlaps, although on the kids front, I was very much the opposite, very um, cautious about the whole thing. You have to do everything in perfect order. Otherwise, it's all going to go terribly wrong. It's very clear that that's not the case. I think it can give you a lot more grit and determination when you kind of go, look, I've got these kids and I've 
I've got something I want to do and I'm just going to make it work, make it happen. And you have those, that support around you. I was one of those people who was asked throughout high school and university and beyond, what is it that you actually want to do? What do you want to do? And I kept thinking, I just want to kind of problem solve and be with people. I studied French and German at university. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with that though? I'm not going to be a professor. I just, I learned languages because I want to be able to talk to more people <laughs> um, and understand more of your stories. So I thought, how's that going to work? So I went into business. I thought, well, I need to pay rent and be able to speak to people. So I worked, I ended up working for a global insurer like you in 2008. I was kind of jumping from job to job, just trying to find something during the recession. And so I just kept taking temp jobs and I would end up doing assistant work, having done all these degrees, (laughs) I sort of went the other way around. And that company that I went into with no interview, no nothing, it was just kind of show up, where something vaguely sparked there, an insurance company. But I met some of the best people there and unbeknownst to me, they were going through a huge kind of financial reckoning They'd been accidentally mispricing some of their insurance products out of Bermuda, and that almost took them down as a company. So when I joined, I didn't realize this, but they were recovering from a sort of near-death experience financially. And they and so the environment that I went into was very tense, to say the least. And to see the leadership that got involved in kind of writing the ship and then steering it in the right direction. And then they went on this whole culture journey and wanted to understand organizational culture assessment that I still use called the Barrett Culture Survey. And they asked, you know, global company there all over Africa, the US, all over Europe, et cetera. And so they asked every single one of their employees through this survey, what do you think? What do you care about? Where are we on this? And then they actually worked on it, which just made such a difference. Pretty refreshing to hear that and kind of have those moments where you're like, oh, that's very forward thinking. Absolutely. And everyone was very suspicious at first. I mean, I, I would go on business trips to South Africa a lot from the London office and they would all go, oh, this culture survey, they're trying to catch us out. They're, tra- they're going to track us back. And I kept saying from a head office perspective, they're not, it's, it's anonymous. They couldn't, they couldn't pin you down to your answers if they wanted to. And they did the survey every year and then they kept working on stuff and they would have a couple big values, words and themes that they were looking to improve and uh, it was pretty incredible. Anyway, through all of that, I, I started getting into women in leadership while I was there and was on their steering committee for their women's network. Anyway, I got involved in their global leadership program and then they were starting to look at delisting from London and kind of selling off parts of the business. And it was it was time to go. And I thought, this is my big chance to go and do what I've always wanted to do I didn't know that my job that I do now I didn't know that it existed when I was growing up so (laughs) I think that's why I was sort of going I want to do this I want to chat to people I want to release their potential is that a thing it was a bit of a journey and Claire you know then you've now got your own very successful coaching business in the vet profession we place a hell of a lot of learning and continual professional development on our clinical skills on the technical skills that gets the job done But as we all know, it doesn't matter what profession we're in, what sector we're in, it's a people business. And I'm actually sure one of the reasons why Lou is so successful is that she actually did customer service for years and years and years with people before she even entered the workforce. So she already had that experience of what it was to work with people. And people are the best 
often cited in, in, in veterinary surveys as the best part of the job and the worst part of the job. And coaching is a slightly different way of learning. And it's not learning the external stuff and the technical stuff that helps us do our job. It's about learning, you know, who, who we are. So I don't know if there's, it'd be lovely to kind of, for you to kind of maybe reflect on some of the stuff that, that Lou has, has shared. And perhaps, you know, she's atypical in lots of ways, but lots of things that she actually faced were, were big barriers. And, and they're often things that stop a lot of, you know, our profession moving forward. So yeah, it'd be lovely to hear how, how actually coaching, we can all take a little bit of that into, into our lives. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing about when you're thinking about veterinary practice or insurance or asset management or customer experience, any of these things, any of these sectors, people get quite bogged down in technicalities. So that's the thing that um, I really need to work on or are not qualified enough in that area. But the reality is we all have the, the same issues come up time and time again for individuals and for organizations. And they're actually nothing to do with the technical side. You know, the best people know what they need to do in their job. It's it's the people facing stuff. It's working with colleagues. It's working with clients. And I know, in especially with ambulatory equine vets, there's lots of moving around. You don't know where you're sort of meeting people emotionally when you get there. They could be very anxious in lots of distress, money pressures, emotional pressures, um, just lots of things that could be coming at you. So it is very much about those human things. In my work, it's a lot more about, and especially when people are working on their own and you're solo, it's how do you understand what your values are, your personal values, and have boundaries to protect those so that they're really shining when you're around other people and you're not being pushed every which way. And an interesting way to think about boundaries is it's what I create and it's what I allow. So from the positive side, you know, what am I building? What's my personal brand, which sounds a bit grandiose or or kind of glamorous but really we're talking about when you meet me or when when someone meets you Louise um what vibe are they getting from you what what do they know they can count on from you or you know Louise would never do this and she'll always you know show up with a smile whatever the thing is and then what are the things that you you don't allow you know that if you imagine a house with a uh, you know beautiful house with a fence around it what's not coming in what's kind of like no no I I don't accept that certain behavior. And that protects other people as well as you in terms of how, how they interact. So that's a big piece, values and purpose. Because when people, we can all get wrapped up in the money thing, we all need it to, to pay our bills and you know live where we want to live. And it's, it's an important part of it. And people often say, oh, I'm not worried about the money side. And you know, I don't care about that. Women particularly say that, not all of them, but a lot of the time. I'm like, no, it's fine. We're all trying to, you know, it's not a charity. And even if you are working for a charity, you still need an income through it. So it's still business in that sense. And there's nothing to be ashamed of there. And there needs to be fairness and boundaries around that too, you know, what we're paid. But then thinking about from the purpose side, what is my personal purpose beyond money? And how does that connect with my customers, clients, and, and if we work for an organization, the organization I work for, where are those overlaps and how am I protecting those things? Is this idea of the personal versus the professional? And one of the things we encounter quite a lot, particularly in equine practice, is, is this idea of working alone and working and, and the loneliness that can accompany that as well. And I think sometimes it's really difficult when you are by yourself a lot of the time. 
how have you kind of overcome that idea of both? Because Claire, you work alone and by the looks is, you know, you're working at home as well. So home working, solo working has been a big thing during the pandemic. And also you, Lou, like how have you kind of developed strategies for combating loneliness at work? And secondly, how has that impacted on your personal and professional boundaries, if at all, and, and, and any strategies you have around that as well? We talk about an epidemic of loneliness in elderly people, but we never talk about an epidemic of loneliness in working people when actually that can be a thing, you know? There is an element of loneliness there that is subconscious in many ways, because I think I think it's not really until people like yourself, Claire, point that out and, and talk about it and Naomi, that actually there are times where you're driving around and you'd just love to have a chat with someone or you need a bit of advice or you want to ask that question, but you you can't really and certainly for me a lot of it is initially as a new grad is that you need to ask a clinical question but you're standing right there in front of the owner there's a horse that's thrashing around for whatever reason and you need an answer and what I have found to be extremely useful are group chats work group chats now if you've got a big you know group it's great if you have a smaller group with not so many vets, it's not not so great because <laughs> you can very quickly pop a quick message into a group chat. You're not having to, you know, awkwardly phone your boss and ask for a second opinion in front of someone who's there, you know, breathing down your neck. You just drop a quick message in. It, I usually, certainly in the occasions I've had to do it, have wrote urgent, urgent answer required or something. So people who see it know that they need to try and get an answer and, and then someone will come back to you. I think that's, that's certainly from a clinical perspective, that's good. And it's getting that off your chest because, you know, as early as possible and not hold, you know, you go home, you hold on to those things. You need to talk to people and it doesn't even matter if it's not someone who, I mean, the majority of my friends are not actually small uh, equine vets they're farm animal vets or they're small animal vets but it's everybody is experiencing a slightly different shade of the same type of issue and even obviously having those conversations with your friends who are vets you know you within the limitations of what you can discuss it's important because everybody everybody has an experience of dealing with people and 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 hardships of some description or other so I, I, as a practitioner, I don't personally feel lonely on, on a regular basis, but I think that's probably because I'm a chatterbox and I talk to people and I talk about things, as I say, within the limitations of what you can discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Claire, I could see you nodding away there. You know, what were your, what were your reflections from listening to, to those really, really great nuggets there from, from Lou? Yeah, so picking up on what Lou was saying about listening, I was thinking about the kind of people who might be listening to this, who were, who were in the car or whatnot in between jobs. And I think vets, for the most part, are going to be probably empaths that would be quite excellent listeners themselves. And speaking of kind of loneliness and so forth, who is going to listen to you at the end of the day, how do I take care of myself so that, and, and where do I draw the line in terms of, I'm not going to be able to go to this next call because that's not right for them. And it's not right for me. I'm just not in the space where I can do it. You need to send someone else. And also I need to be able to get this off my chest and, and say what I'm feeling. I ended up sort of over time, I've built a kind of 
almost bored around myself. It's more informal than that, but kind of thinking about who do I speak to on the technical side? Who's really good at holding me to my own boundaries with clients and making sure that I'm keeping everything in line on that front? And who really challenges me? Who can I hear the tough stuff from? So I have a a mentor who used to have her own leadership business and is retired. And uh, she's in her 60s. And she's someone who she can say some really tough, direct stuff to me sometimes. And it still can hit me between the eyes a little bit, but my recovery time is a lot quicker with her. And I can, I know her intentions are, are totally pure. That's an important one. Someone who you can take feedback from and hear the tough stuff from. And you know, they're only telling you that because it might be a blind spot and it's going to help you get through that, that tough time. There's no other agenda there. I have a coach myself as well. That's kind of like about once a quarter, try to do that and it helps broaden my thinking. And then I have friends in the area, a lot of whom I met during the pandemic. It's kind of the opposite to traveling around all the time. I was here a lot and then it's kind of who can I uh, go have a coffee with out in the cold or in the park. And a lot of those are women who are so I'm 38. A number of them are in their late 40s or even early 50s. And so they've got grown up kids. And it gives me that perspective as well of kind of what does this look like down the line? And what can I not sweat right now? Because actually, they don't really remember the details of all the juggling. But I think that's really important. And I think there's two things that, that you just said there that made me kind of just think back on the value of having people of different ages in your corner, value of having people both younger and older with a variety of viewpoints. And I think, you know, you mentioned about mentors there, Claire, and we discuss a lot about the value of mentors, but I think also reverse mentoring and having people younger than you who can teach you so much about yourself and about the world that you don't know as well. Lou, how are you building that sort of mentoring network, formal or informal around you in practice and and as you're kind of building your career? It sounds like Claire's fairly established on that front. I was just wondering how as a vet you found that process kind of going into practice in the last year. I would say mine's definitely less formal. I I would say I have a lot of mentors who do not actually know that they're my mentors. (laughs) <laughs> or <you know. laughs> and and I guess it's there's definitely different people that I'll go to for different bits of advice and I think I think you you hit the nail on the head about age groups my life not necessarily by any direct thing that I was trying to do but because I was at university with majority of people who were younger than me when I went to the school gates, I had a lot of maybe slightly older parents because we were young parents and also having people, which I think is really important. And I, I hope that I'm one of those people where for, for my friends is that, you know, you don't have to be in contact with someone on a very regular basis to, to have an issue and drop them a message that you know that that person's going to be good at helping you with. And I suppose social media helps in that perspective as well when 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 we're all connected in that way you feel like you see people or know people better than you you probably would do if if we were all back in the age of telephones and meeting up with people you know 
I was just going to pick up on something Naomi said about younger, just different age groups and younger people and all the things that get said sometimes about, oh, you know, this, this latest generation and they don't have any sense of determination and this, that. I'm like, that's absolute nonsense. <laughs> I mean, people either have it or they don't, maybe it could be said, but um, I don't see any differences between genders or age group. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And Lou, just, just quickly, you know, you've wanted to be a vet for so long, but how have expectations matched reality? I think there's quite a lot of issues there in, in, in terms of often the way we think our vet career might be in that, in that first, in that first year or two. I absolutely love my job. I am so glad that I did it. And I, I say I did it. I always say, actually, we did it as a family. I feel like we did it. I am a three and three animal person, but I also really do love people. And I think that my my earliest memory of deciding that I wanted to be a vet was where we had uh, a pony that had got very badly injured. And we took it to a chap called Bruce Steele in Northern Ireland, very well-renowned equine vet. And I just felt like this guy can this guy is going to be able to help us. He's going to be able to fix this. And, and that's partly why I love emergency medicine is because I feel like I can help the animal, but I can, I can provide some comfort for the people or do something useful for them. It has superseded my expectations in many ways. However, the first year was difficult by, you know, there's no way around that as much as anybody loves their job or whatever there is there are so many challenges and barriers that you just even as a vet student you will never think about you get there and you are still learning and then you're you know trying to figure all of those things out and you know manage manage a hysterical owner and that sort of thing so those things I wasn't quite prepared for I guess and and having said that that was me coming from working in a veterinary practice and and having worked you know I did work weekend nights um in a small animal hospital during during COVID as sort of a veterinary assistant so I thought I was well prepared but I still I think there's some things that you just don't get until you're experiencing it yourself it's always great to have those colleagues that you trust and you can have those conversations with and they'll give you good sound advice. Part of that right, that I felt was challenging was this new where you've got owners that are just, you know, relying on you in such a heavy way. They want to contact with you on such a regular basis. You think you've relayed your bloods and you've done this and you've done that, but they still want to keep, you know, talking to you and asking you questions and getting more information. Um, and I think in ambulatory practice, you're not quite as protected as you are in small animal practice because because I do both. I can see there is a real difference in the small animal practice. Your reception team will take your calls. You most likely your your clients do not have your mobile number in ambulatory equine practice that's a very different thing unless you're extremely disciplined and you've got proper rules about that sort of thing so many of my clients have my number they can call me they could call me now if they wanted to you know and, and get in touch and they they will send you a message that you can't necessarily ignore or defer in many ways because that it might be something that they need an answer to and, and it would be slightly negligent of you for not answering them in a, in, in a way. Um, that side of things I, I realised was something that I, I struggled a little bit with 
just that rel- the relentlessness and the fact that that's, that's going to not go away. And I think as soon as you kind of realize what it is that I was, as I said, I was felt like I was dragging a burden, but I wasn't quite sure what that burden was. And then I realized actually, you know, and you don't always know the answers as a new grad and it, it will become easier and it does become easier. So I think that that certainly was something that I wasn't quite ready for and expected. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can remember that. I can remember that even now, you know, I'm 13 years out and everything you're saying, I can feel and remember. I always say expectations are just resentments waiting to happen. So how can you co-agree, you know, understand as much of the reality as you can before, before you get there. But, but like you says, so much of it, you have to go through. There's no protection from it. It's, it's experiential on a personal level, and, and that's something that we have to go through. So over to you, Claire. I was actually going to pick up on um, something Lou had said earlier in her uh, story of all of this, how she got into this, where you'd been sending out all these applications, 70-some applications, and one of the bits of feedback you got was, I don't know why you're applying for veterinary when it doesn't tie in with your skill set. And this this goes that really struck me and this happens a lot I think in all industries people have all different agendas and backgrounds and preconceived notions about what is and isn't possible and that struck me as some very bizarre feedback but all I want to say about this is you know if you really love something and you really care about it try to turn the volume down on people who have all these ideas about you know what is and isn't possible for you because it, it you know it really can be done as we can see with and you never know quite why someone is doing that you know it could even be a slightly malicious agenda or they could be sort of envious uh, and think to themselves you know oh I wish I'd done that I probably could have gone for it a bit more and now here I am so they sort of need to believe that other people can't there are lots of different reasons but it's important to listen to your own intuition there and same for the boundaries piece. If something doesn't feel right, if you kind of go, this really doesn't gel with me, this behavior is not okay to really listen to that and not listen to the narratives that you might be being given or that might be sort of even from childhood as kind of, well, I just have to work harder. I just have to work through it. Um, you know, you're being given messages all the time by, by your body and your kind of psyche. And you have to tap into those quite a bit. Mm. There is so much value in that conversation. And from what you're both saying about inspiration, techniques, boundaries, mentors, getting started, looking after each other, it's just, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. I think there's a lot, especially when you're starting out, it is really hard. And I think we're not unique in our profession in that sense. And I'm sure Claire would echo that, that there's a lot of professions where It's really hard when you start and it sounds so trite to say that some of it is just life experience that you just have to go through when you start your career. But there is an element of that, I think. And, and, but the reassurance of knowing that you're not alone and there's always people out there. Definitely. I know I am Ebsis as well. If anyone wants to ever get in touch with us, we are always happy to help in any way we can. And whether that's a listening ear or advice or being a mentor or whatever, there's people out there who can help you and VSGD and, um, and MSD are very keen for that to be a, a message of this podcast as well. So Claire, Lou, thank you so much. It's been a real joy. Loved this conversation. And I know Ebs uh, will echo that as well. Yeah, we could have kept it rolling. And just quickly for people who would love to follow maybe your journeys um, a little bit more. Lou, I know you've got, uh, you're really active and, and share a lot of wonderful things on Instagram. How, how, where can people find you? What's the handle? 
it's the bed and heels actually certainly I, I do always reply to messages on that as well yeah. if anybody has any questions or fancies doing um uh, a kind of quirky career type thing that I'm doing that's brilliant thank you and Claire how about you where can people find out a little bit more about you so I'm on LinkedIn mainly. There's lots of confidentiality stuff for me and clients. So that's the best place to reach me. So I'm Claire Fry and my company is called Pale Blue Coaching. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you all. Thanks very Thank much. you so much. It's been a joy. Thank you. What an amazing show. Many thanks to today's guests. If you want more information, have a look at the show notes or drop us a line at kbhhuk at msd.com. 